I remember the first counselor I went to work with, very first session, uh, she, she taught me about boundaries. And, and I'm thinking, I don't know if she did this like with every client that came to see her or if she could just look at me and said, this guy needs the boundary presentation. But I was in my mid-30s in my second marriage. I already had that PhD in marriage and family therapy. I had never heard of boundaries. Mm. And so that was a big game changer in life and relationship to learn how it's up to me to set boundaries and then invite people to abide by my boundaries. Hey, welcome to the Dad the Best I Can podcast. I am your host, Rob Roseman. We have an awesome episode for you today. This is my conversation with Dr. Robert Glover. Dr. Glover wrote the incredible book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. I think it's one of the most powerful books any man should read to learn about himself, about relationships, about business, about marriage, and to one day pass along to your kid. You could change their life and their future relationships. Hope you guys enjoy the conversation and pick up Dr. Glover's book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, on Amazon. All right, let's get to it. Well, you mentioned divorce, which I want to talk to you a lot about. Like I'm sure a lot of your students and readers, I came across your book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, after I had a 2020 divorce. So I'm navigating that road. And uh, like a lot of people, it was really mind-blowing and eye-opening to read something that, you know, 43 years, I never really could articulate like you did. And uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to write No More Mr. Nice Guy, what it's about, and, and give us an inside look at that. Yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, the, the, the book itself really came out of the context of my second marriage. I, um, you know, people sometimes say, well, well Robert, you know, you're, you're a marriage and family therapist. I had a, I had a PhD in marriage and family therapy at 29, um, but it really not, taught me nothing about how to do marriage. So I, I've often said I, I've bumbled my way through every relationship I've had, which is what most of us do. And that's, that's how I came to write a book. And that's actually where my best teachings come from is what I've bumbled my way through, what, what, what I didn't get perfectly, what I didn't get till I'd kind of made the same mistakes a few times over. Um, so I was in my second marriage um, and, and, you know, thinking, I'm a nice guy. I treat this woman well, you know, I'm better than her ex. I'm raising her kids. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I give her everything she wants. I try to make her happy. And um, it seemed like she was never happy and, um, you know, was always finding fault in me. And, and as a, a typical nice guy, you know, resentment built up. You know, I thought I was doing everything right and she didn't appreciate me and wasn't particularly sexually available like she'd been before we got married. And, and uh, resentments built up and resentments for nice guys often come out in one of two ways. One is something called passive aggressiveness. For those of the, your listeners who can't see me, I'm kind of looping my hand around, kind of like, it's kind of, you know, a stab in the back kind of way of expressing resentment or anger. Um, and, and the other way that nice guys tend to express their built up resentment is through what my second wife called victim pukes. I did a few of those where, you know, you store up all this stuff for a few months of a time and finally, you know, some, some straw breaks the camel's back and you just let it all come puking out and it's not very nice and not very pretty. Um, and, and my, my then second wife, about two, two, three years into the marriage said, you know, I can't take any more of your passive aggressiveness. Everybody thinks you're such a nice guy, but you're not so nice to me. You got to go get help. If you don't go get help, I'm leaving. And, and I loved her. And I, I, I wanted to, you know, 
try to keep my marriage together. So I went and got help. Try, and I went thinking, I got to find out why me being such a nice guy doesn't make her appreciate me more and like me more and treat me better. And luckily, I fell into some, some good situations. One was a 12-step group. Uh, I, I joined a 12-step group for sex addicts because my wife kept saying, you're a sex addict, you're a sex addict. I quickly found out I wasn't a sex addict, but that group was a great place because for the first time in my life, I started just revealing me, started revealing what's called toxic shame. Everything I'd hidden from the world in my relationships. I grew up in a very fundamental Christian church, um, a critical father. So I learned to hide everything, just keep it under wraps. And so that was really powerful to go to this 12-step group and just start sharing everything about me that, you know, I'd, I'd never felt comfortable sharing. And, and it felt liberating. It was, I, I highly recommend it. In fact, it's, it's the number one thing I tell nice guys to do and no more Mr. Nice Guy. Go find safe people and start revealing yourself to let go of the toxic shame that says, I'm not okay just as I am and get more accurate feedback. No, you're human. You make mistakes. You know, you have a dark side. You're, mm -hmm. you're perfectly imperfect. You're, you know, you're okay move on, work, work on your strengths. Don't, don't, don't hide all this stuff. So that, that was really powerful. I also got some good counseling. I remember the first counselor I went to work with very first session. Uh, she, she taught me about boundaries and, and I'm thinking, I don't know if she did this like with every client that came to see her or if she could just look at me and said, this guy needs the boundary presentation. But I was in my mid-30s, in my second marriage. I already had that PhD in marriage and family therapy. I had never heard of boundaries. Mm. And so that was a big game changer in life and relationship to learn how it's up to me to set boundaries and then invite people to abide by my boundaries. And, and so that was really powerful. Not long after that, I joined a men's group that I was in, oh, I don't know, four or five years that was really a powerful place to, to just get connected with men, to embrace my masculinity. We worked a lot around sexual shame. That was kind of, uh, kind of an ongoing theme in that group. And it was during that time that in my private practice uh, doing marriage counseling that I, I started noticing a lot of men coming either individually or with their partners saying, I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Uh, I treat my wife well. I'm better than her ex. I'm raising her kids. I give her whatever she wants. She's never happy. She's angry all the time. She never wants to have sex anymore. When's it going to be my turn? And I thought, man, I can finish these guys' sentences <laughs> for them. I'm not the only one who thinks this way. So 25 plus years ago, I, I started my first No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group. And basically, just wanted to start working with men around the stuff I was learning about how how to become what I now call uh, uh, an integrated male. It could be an authentic male. It could be, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter what we call it, but learning to be our authentic selves. And during that time, I just started writing them chapters every week to give to them whenever they came to group. And over time, they and their often wives and girlfriends said, Robert, you need to write a book. You need to go on Oprah. There's lots of people that need to hear about this. So over a period of six, seven years, I just kept writing and it eventually turned into No More Mr. Nice Guy and uh, it's been, got published about 17, 18 years ago, uh, early 2003. Um, and uh, it, it just keeps growing. So that's how, how the book came about. That's how my own process. So I say I'm a, I'm a recovering nice guy. I've been at it for 25 plus years and I'm still working at it. I still got a coach. I'm still in a men's program that I, I get to keep working on me and stay connected with men. So um, 
it, it's been a fun process and I, I've learned a lot and grown a lot and I get to teach a lot. So uh, that, that's, so that's kind of, that's, that's the long elevator speech of where no more Mr. Nice Guy came from. Well, that's, I mean, and you actually coming out and saying that you are a recovering Mr. Nice Guy and, you know, people yeah. that can see you, you're, you're a tough guy. And I think that's a big kind of, <laughs> that's, a a dis, that's a disconnect that I think people feel is uh, there's kind of this masculinity element where you're like, oh, I'm not a doormat. I'm not a pushover. And I don't want to even admit to maybe acting like that in certain ways, but it sounds like these are things that can just kind of come out. Maybe you're wired that way. Maybe you were brought up that way. And it was really just, it was eye-opening to hear you talk about these stories because I think there is some kind of, I don't want to say shame, but there's some element to it where guys don't even want to really approach this subject. And a lot of times it is the end of a marriage when they have to look at themselves and yeah. say, what was my role in this? You're right about that. Cause, cause a, lo a lot of men find my book, find me, when going through a challenging time, uh, a, a lot of guys find it through their 12 step programs, uh, you know, a lot of recovering alcoholics and sex addicts, somebody in the program says, you need to read this, uh, often going through a divorce. Um, and you wouldn't believe how many men have said, Hey, my ex-wife gave me your book. You know, my ex-girlfriend gave me your book. Mm -hmm. And then, and then a lot of guys that are just struggling to find love relationship, a satisfying sex life. Uh, you know, often go searching for answers and then tend, tend to find me as well. So usually people find the book when they're going through a struggle, which is great because I wrote the book when I was going through a struggle of a difficult relationship in which my nice guy patterns were just making things worse, not things better. And, um, and so I, I, I relate to every stage of, of men who come to this, whether it's because they're, they, they can't find love, they can't get into relationship, they can't get laid, or their, their marriage is coming apart, um, or they've had a crisis with addiction, pornography. So I, I, I can relate to it. I, I, I didn't write the book and I don't teach based on all the stuff I learned in university mm -hmm. or read out of a book. It's been my life. It's been my struggle and my work, you know, with thousands of, of guys who, um, who think if they're just nice enough, they'll be liked and loved and get all their needs met. And I think you've talked about in the book a lot, it doesn't have to be so black and white, whereas, oh, if, you know, I'm a nice guy, so I need to just act like a jerk. And that's what women like. And they respond to that. There is a lot of uh, nuance to it. And I think a lot of us can't even process because like you even said earlier, we were never really taught how to be in a relationship. Maybe we were yeah. taught how to get the girl and how to get married and how to have kids. But yeah. in terms of cultivating the relationship, maintaining it, all these things, I feel like uh, we're just kind of fish out of water and we do need to relearn it. And I imagine a lot yeah. of ways, had you not gone through it, gone through that pain yourself, you wouldn't have even realized a lot of it. Exactly. I, I, I tell people all the time, you know, my, my, what I teach and what I teach the best and have the most impact on is, is what I've struggled with. Um, yeah, I was struggling in a relationship when I wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy. Uh, after 14 years, I got out of that marriage and then spent about the next 12 years uh, as a single guy, dating, having relationships. I had to learn how to be a single guy because here's, here's a couple of tidbits that like no one tells you growing up. Um, dating is not in our human DNA. It's only existed maybe, I don't know, 
less than 100 years. People didn't date more than 100 years ago. You either had a marriage arranged for you or you just met the girl next door or somebody you went to church with or somebody you went to school with. So dating didn't exist. So, but we think, well, how come I'm not good at meeting women? Well, because it's not in our human DNA. And add to that, we think, well, how come I'm not good at relationship? How come my marriage, I often hear the word failed. You know, how come my marriage failed? And I, and I tell people, you know, I've been a marriage therapist for 30 years. I'm on my third marriage. And marriage is not in our human DNA either. It's only existed for a small fraction of time in human evolution. For 2 million years, we were basically tribal and communal. We did not pair bond. We've only been pair bonding for less than 10,000 years. And this idea that we can form a lifelong monogamous pair bond with one person, and that's going to be, you know, storybook, happy, romantic uh, for the rest of our lives, that's a fallacy. But we believe it should work because that's what we're told. That's how you do it. Hey, you fall in love and then you get married. But the, the funny thing is the idea of romantic love as a basis for a relationship, that's only been around about 200 years that we're going to get married oh, because I love you so much. Um, I read somewhere, I can't recall if it was Mark Manson or Somebody, I, I read that Rome, uh, Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet to illustrate the fallacy, the stupidity of romantic love. Oh, we love each other so much. Let's kill ourselves. <laughs> you know, that, that's how stupid romantic love is. But we think, hey, I'm in love. This is the right one for me. It's going to be good forever. And, and it's, again, it's not in our human DNA to do that. But here's what I tell people. Even though it's not natural to do what we're trying to do, if we can do it consciously, or at least semi-consciously, it's a very powerful personal growth machine to invite another person, usually the opposite sex, into your life with their baggage, your baggage, their relationship issues, your relationship issues, and try to make that work over time. That's never easy. But if we can be conscious about it, it can help us work through a lot of our old baggage. It can, it can help us learn where our walls are, where our protections are, and begin to let that, that stuff down and open our heart and, and truly learn about ourselves as we you know, get deeper with another person. So I, I, I love relationship, and uh, I've just come to the realization it's always going to be a struggle, even if you find an amazing person. I think it was Pia Melody that said, we tend to be attracted to people who have some of the worst traits of both of our parents. Mm -hmm. so, so that means, you know, you and I are doing that. We're, being, we're unconsciously creating relationships with, with people that, that have the worst traits of dad, worst traits of mom. Uh, and, and the person we're attracted to is doing the same with us, right? They're attracted to us because we're like their dad in the worst ways and we're like their mom in the worst ways. And, and here's the reason we do that. As little children, we develop what I call a relationship toolbox. It's the stuff we learn at two months old, two years old, four years old, seven. It's the things we learn to do to navigate, negotiate, you know, our relationship with our mother and our father, who are both flawed, imperfect people with a flawed, imperfect relationship. 
And, and so those tools we learned, maybe it was being nice, maybe it was avoiding conflict, maybe it was never crying, maybe it was never expressing feelings, maybe it was being hyperlogical, maybe it was just whatever we learned, maybe it was being oppositionally defiant. We just did the opposite of what mom and dad wanted. Maybe we hid everything so we wouldn't get found out. Those were the relationship tools we added to our relationship toolbox when we were two years old, four years old, 14 years old. Then we carry those into adulthood and unconsciously go looking for something that feels familiar. Who is somebody I can use these tools with? My hiding tool, my pushback tool, my keep the peace at all cost tool, my try to make them happy tool, my try to talk them through, talk them down, and get them over it tool. Those are the tools we have. So we got to find people that we can use those tools with. If we find somebody that none of those tools work on, we're gonna quickly lose interest and move on. That's just what we all do. That's why I say that the relationship is such a powerful personal growth machine. It makes us aware, hey, I'm using tools I learned at two years old that worked on mom's depression or worked on dad's anger or worked on my abandonment experiences, but those aren't gonna work if I want a healthy, connected, intimate relationship, that's where the personal, powerful, you know, growth machine part comes in. But I found, again, it requires a lot of consciousness, which I found usually requires a lot of help, mm -hmm. a lot of assistance. Trying to do this alone is, is a fool's errand. And it's why so many of us stumble and fall and, and, and just, you know, put up our armor and, you know, put up our weapons. And now, now, you know, uh, what, what, what's that song? Um, you know, I, I learned to shoot and draw first before somebody else could shoot me. Mm -hmm. That's why I learned about love. Uh, hallelujah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so that's, that's the beauty of this stuff. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. I mean, it's, it is, this feels like a therapy session. So uh, thank you, Dr. Glover. This is really, and I'm sure a lot of people are hearing this and their minds are being blown at like, Oh my God, I think about those things too. And like you were saying, and I've read a lot of this, these are were survival strategies when you were sure. a kid. And uh, to think that we're 40, 50 years old now, we're over them is kind of, you know, a misconception, right? Because we are wired to kind of, you know, when somebody, the, the conflict avoidance, all of these things. You mentioned before boundaries, which is something that I only in the last year or two even learned, starting to learn what that means. Right. What are examples of that if somebody is kind of a you know a dad going through some relationship struggles whether they're you know discussing them or not what are the kind of things that might be an example of oh i'm doing that and that's not working and it's some cycle that we're in all the time and and what would be a way maybe to break free of that or improve that before it gets too late all right. Well, boundaries are one of my favorite subjects, mainly because none of us know how to do them. None of us really know what they are. And, and just quickly, I, I mean, I can do a whole workshop on boundaries, but I'll try to give you a quick version. You know, when we were little, um, the big people could do to us whatever they wanted, right? Parents, older siblings, kids in the neighborhood, teachers, priests, whatever. They could do whatever they wanted to us because we were little. We could not stop it. I often in my seminars will ask, I call it a trick question. I'll say, why do, why in Western culture do children get spanked? And, you know, and then people give answers. Well, the parents are trying to discipline them or the parents are frustrated or the child acted badly or, you know, blah, 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 or the parents are just doing what they learned. And I said, no, those are all the wrong answer. The reason children get spanked, get, get physically hit 
is because they can't stop it. Right? Hmm. We might get pissed off at our neighbor. But we usually don't go hit them. <laughs> we might get pissed off at our coworker or a boss, but we usually don't go hit them. But children get hit only because they can't stop it. So what happens, and that's just an illustration of children cannot stop any of the stuff that happens to them, whether it's parents yelling at them, hitting them, abandoning them, sexually violating them, using them for their own needs. Children can't stop that. So what happens is every human being who starts out as a child, that's most of us, grow up to be adolescents and adults and have no clue that we can say, no, stop. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Because when we tried to do that at a young age, you know, we, we, we got overridden in, in one way or another by the bigger people. So like, you know, here you and I are as adults, and we didn't learn about boundaries until well into adulthood and well into trying to make some relationships work, right? Mm -hmm. So what I tell people about boundaries is, is that they're really a beautiful thing because boundaries allow other people to get close to us and let us get close to them without harm, right? Boundaries let people in. And what I tell people, if we don't have boundaries, and I'll go a little bit more into what these look like. If we don't have boundaries, we either have to avoid people and social context altogether, or put up some pretty thick walls to keep people from getting too close. That way, we're less likely to get hurt. And we were talking a little bit earlier, you know, on this call about, like when I went to a 12-step group and just started revealing me. Okay, I, I, I couldn't reveal me as a young person because I'd get in trouble. I might get hurt. So I learned not to do things where I could get hurt. So I learned to keep that stuff in. But keeping stuff in is actually the exact opposite thing that we need to do if we want an intimate, authentic relationship. We got to let things out. We got to let people know us. But if letting them know us means they might then hurt us with that stuff or hurt us in our vulnerable place, we're going to keep our guard up. Right? Boundaries let us do that and not have to keep our guard up. Now, the illustration that I give people to kind of kind of get the picture of this ahead of time is that if you're driving a, your car out on a street somewhere, um, every line on the road, every street sign, every stoplight, every marker are boundaries. So it's the, the, the lines in the road that say, drive on this side, don't drive on that side. The speed limits say, go this speed, it's safer a yield sign, a stop sign, a green light, a red light, a crosswalk. Those all allow a lot of vehicles and people to coexist in close proximity, often at high rates of speed, without all crashing into each other and, and causing gridlock and damage and death. Those are all boundaries. We've all learned what those boundaries do, and we've come to accept them and respect them, unless you live here in Mexico, where I do, where, where they mean nothing. <laughs> Red lights mean nothing. Speed limits mean nothing. Seat belts mean nothing. Um, you know, speed limit, this is nothing. It doesn't matter. So there are very few boundaries here. Uh, some people like that. Um, so, but they allow us to coexist in close proximity. So boundaries, you know, and I tell people, um, Boundaries are about getting us to be different, not about getting other people to be different. So we have to get clarity uh, on things like who gets to come into my space? How long do they get to stay? What do they get to do while they're in my space? When is it time for them to leave my space? That's personal boundaries. And, and that's a learning process. It, it usually takes a while and it usually takes a coach. It usually takes somebody who has some understanding of boundaries to coaches because everybody begins with, I don't even know where my boundaries are. 
I, I, you know, I don't even know where to start. That's true for all of us because we don't. We don't know where to start. Hmm. We don't know where our boundaries are. It, it, it does take process, and it usually takes trial and error in a relationship to say, oh, I don't like that when people do that. Um, and, and, and just to give an example, and I'll go a little bit more into boundary setting. Uh, about two years ago in the men's program I'm in, we did a, a, a pretty big, I guess, project uh, that my coach calls a, a feminine reconciliation, where we had, to, we had to make a list of all the significant women in our adult life and then sit down and go through a process that, you know, he gave us that where we kind of go into detail of, of you know, where, where we didn't show up or where we weren't our best selves or where we didn't lead or where we didn't accept their love. And, and we had to sit and evaluate that. Now, when I started the process, I, t I told my coach, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to resist doing this because I actually am pissed off. I think all the women in my life, all my exes need to be doing this with me. I treated them well. I put up with way too much. I let them treat me badly. And, you know, I, I kind of resisted consciously for a little bit. And then, then I dove into the process. And two things came out of that process that, that for me were really meaningful. Now, it also meant I needed to go, you know, do, you know, clear some stuff up with a few women in my life. But here was two things that really became obvious to me. One was that every, I'll just use failed in quote marks, every failed relationship I had was on me because I had failed to set clear boundaries early on that gave that relationship a chance to be different than it was. Because when I looked at every relationship, every, uh, my three marriages, including my present one, um, about three or four other relationships I had uh, before my first marriage and some after my second marriage when I was out learning how to date, in every case, every relationship that ended, actually there's one exception. I, I, I ended that for other reasons, not because of the woman's bad behavior, but in every other case, Early on, usually within the first few days of dating of this relationship, the woman behaved in some unacceptable way. You know, withdrew and quit responding to messages, threw a little fit, accused me of something, um, got quiet and wouldn't tell me what was bothering her. You know, some, some behaviors that are not functional in long-term relationships. And in every one of those cases, I, I tried to fix it, make it better talk them through, talk them down, try to get them over it, try to get the, everything back to good. And, and I did that in every, I could look back at every relationship early and say that behavior showed up early on and I tolerated it and enabled it. And I realized in every case, if, if I had done one of two things, if I'd said, hey, that doesn't work. You know, if you do that again, we will be done. You know, whether this is a second date or two months in, and, and maybe even coach them. Here's how you need to do that different. Instead of going off on me, because I didn't do something you expected, you can just ask me as somebody you care about to please do that next time. And I'll be happy to do it. I'll tell you yes or no, but I'll probably be happy to do it. But you don't get to go off on me, right? And if I'd done that, and, and with some women I dated, I did set some pretty good boundaries early on. And, and in every case, they responded well. Sometimes even came back and said, you know, I talked to my girlfriends about that boundary you set with me. And all my girlfriends said, that's a good guy. You need to stay with him. <laughs> you know, he has nice, clear boundaries. And, um, and, and so I realized that was on me. If I had set clear boundaries, I've said, this doesn't work. If you do that again, we will not be together. Or here's how I want you to do it different if you want to keep hanging out with me. If I'd done that, one of two things would have happened. The relationship would have ended right then and there or soon after if they did it again, right? 
And that would have then opened the door for, for me not to spend months and years in toxic relationships. It would have opened the door to be, to open up for other relationships, or it would have provided direction for the person I was with to know how to behave better with me. Because the truth is, most of us don't realize how bad we behave. And most of us don't have incentive to behave better because nobody ever tells us, hey, that's hurtful when you do that. Oh, really? Well, I don't want to hurt you. Okay, so let's work on how not to do that anymore, right? Most people never get that information in a loving way. So that's one thing I learned in the feminine reconciliation. Boundaries were on me. And, and I couldn't be angry at any of these women. I couldn't be resentful. I couldn't carry a grudge because in every case, they were just being themselves and I accepted it, right? I put up with it. I enabled it. Okay. The second thing that I learned was actually kind of interesting for me, you know, looking about six or eight relationships, you know, over my adult life, uh, significant ones, I realized almost every relationship introduced me to something new that I didn't already know I didn't want in a relationship. And let that sink in for a minute. I, I like you nodding. Like, you know, you, I get with one woman, this might be my first wife. I didn't know, I didn't like for when the woman's upset at me that she just clams up and never will talk about what's on her mind and just stay silent for days or weeks at a time. I didn't know I didn't want that till I found that, you know, I didn't know I didn't want, for example, this might be my second wife that, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't want a woman to be sexually seductive before we get married and announce on our honeymoon. Aren't you glad now that we're married? We don't have to pretend to like sex anymore. Oh, yeah. I didn't see that one coming. I didn't know. I didn't want that. All right. Um, I didn't know, for example, might be my third wife. I didn't know that I didn't want every time my wife saw some woman in public who thought I might look at her ass, her boobs. I didn't know uh, that I didn't want to be accused of looking at that woman's boobs or ass just because my wife was looking at her boobs and ass. Um, just, I, I gotta take. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Just this is one, good, one, go. Give me one second. Sure thing. Uh, I, I, I got two people outside my door beckoning to me hang yes, on yes all good go ahead robert all right i'm back so thank yeah you, thank you um so the, the, that that was really powerful learning experience and doing that little thing the boundary part was on me and we're relationships are going to introduce us to things we don't see coming that means that learning to set boundaries is an ongoing evolving process because we get to keep learning in new contexts that, that we never had to set boundaries before so in terms of the boundaries um Often when I teach guys about boundaries that they have anxiety. Oh no, somebody's going to get mad at me if I tell them don't do that or stop or here's what I want. Uh, mainly because that's what happened as kids and family. People got, we had negative reactions if we asserted ourselves. Um, so I, I have to convince the people I work with, men and women, that boundaries are a good thing. That's why I give kind of the, the driving down the street example. They're a good thing. They're a positive thing. And yes, at times people may not respond well to your boundaries. But what I, what I try to teach people is that for me, how this has evolved is that the best boundaries are the boundaries that invite everyone into higher consciousness, into higher awareness. So for example, a really simple little boundary technique that I teach people is that say you're with you know, a friend or a girlfriend or a spouse or a, a coworker, doesn't matter, and they do something that feels hurtful to you. Right? A really cool little technique is to say something like, ouch, 
that hurt. Did you mean it to? Hmm. So the ouch kind of disarms everybody. And guess what? Adults don't walk around saying ouch. <laughs> but to say ouch, it kind of creates an emotional container that now you and that person can step into. And, and, and it's not attacking, right? It's not you know, aggressive. So ouch, you're vulnerable. When you say ouch, you're being vulnerable. You let the other person know something doesn't feel good. And then you follow that up with how it felt to you. Now, and I get these aren't necessarily all technically feelings, but you might say, ouch, that hurt. Did you mean it to? Or ouch, that felt demeaning. Did you mean it to? Or ouch, that felt dismissive. Did you mean it to? Uh, or ouch, that felt prickly. Did you mean it to? You know, those aren't technically feelings, but it's your experience of it. And it's not blaming them. It's not saying, hey, you were mean to me, or you hurt me, or you were an ass to me, or you know, you 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 violated my boundaries. You know, it was just this is how it felt. That felt prickly. Did, and by asking, did you mean it to? It invites them into higher awareness without them being like on the defensive because you've accused them of something. So if you say, for example, ouch, that hurt, did you mean it to? And and again, that's a very vulnerable thing to even do. I mean, you're you're already having to be in a higher consciousness and awareness to say. You, this hurt me. Mm-hmm. Are, are you aware uh, uh, that what you just did felt hurtful to me? Now, the other person then gets invited into their own higher awareness. So they may say, no, 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 man, I'm sorry. I, I, I apologize. I, I didn't realize that would hurt. I was just trying to be funny or I, I just, sorry, I apologize. Now, they actually get a little bit of an education of how their unconscious behaviors might land with other people. Again, as I said, most of us don't know when we're behaving badly or being hurtful, and we need loving, you know, a spotlight on that. So they might say, no, I'm sorry. I apologize. We good? Yeah. All right. And then you're good because you got it out there. You're not building it up. Well, they might, you know, when you say, ouch, that hurt. Did you mean it to? Then they might go, you know, come to think of it. I have been pissed at you for a while. You know, I was mad that you did X, Y, and Z three months ago, and I never said anything, and I've been pissed ever since. So probably that was a little bit of passive-aggressive poke. And then you might say, thank you for telling me that. Let's talk about that, because I would rather we resolve that than you be resentful and keep poking at me. And then you might find out maybe you hurt them Mm -hmm. three months ago, and you didn't know it, and they didn't know how to tell you. And so you both can work that out. That's a very loving process to be able to work through that. Then maybe the third response might be, they go, no, I didn't mean to hurt you. You're such a baby. You're too sensitive. Man up. You quit whining all the time. Blah, blah, blah. I don't hang out with those kind of people. I don't hang out with what I call the professional boundary invaders that they actually blame you when they are the ones behaving badly. So that's a nice little place to start. Now, the, the one piece I'll add to this, the ultimate power any of us have to set and maintain our boundaries with people. It involves our willingness and ability to remove ourselves from that situation or from that relationship. Even children cannot, they're not able to remove themselves. I've, I've often thought that at about between seven and 12 years old, that if the, if our family German shepherd and I had just left home and gone to the streets of Santa Monica, California, and lived out of dumpsters on the beach, you know, in a beautiful weather, I probably would have had a less traumatic childhood than I did growing up in my home with my parents, right? Um, So, 
we can't do that. We can't just take the dog, family dog, and take off. Um, and so, but as adults, again, because most of us don't have the, any idea how to set boundaries, we don't realize we can remove ourselves. And we're in, in therapy working with a lot of people, where I find people usually get stuck is they're not willing to remove themselves from a bad situation. Now, sometimes that means just getting off the phone. I know with my, my, my second wife, when she'd be got kind of going off on me on the phone, I, I learned to just say, I'm going to get off the phone now. Call me back when you're, when you're in a better mood and hang up. That's back. I'm doing the hang up thing like when you used to hang phones yeah, yeah, up yeah. <laughs> before you just hit a button on it and then threw it against the wall. Um, so, and, and I learned to do that without you know, slamming the receiver down. Without, I just said, I'm going to get off the phone when you're in a better mood. Call me back. And it's weird because then like 45 minutes later, She'd call me back and she said, I think I know what was bothering me. And then she could tell me, but mm -hmm. I had to be willing to remove myself. Maybe that means if you're kind of having a fight and it's 11 o'clock at night or one o'clock in the morning, you say, I'm going to call a timeout now. We're not getting anywhere with this. Let's sleep on this. Or if it's a day, say, I'm going to take a walk. Uh, I'll be back in 30 minutes. Well, I'm going to go take a walk. Removing yourself from that context to, to the best of your ability. Sometimes you, you can't physically do that. But if you can, just take a break one way or another be able to walk away from it. Now, in the bigger picture, you know, a lot of times people won't walk away from relationship because, you know, I've got too much invested or, you know, I made a commitment to God or, uh, you know, we've got kids or, you know, we're, we're $150,000 in debt or whatever. So I can't leave. And, and it's those situations where people feel the most stuck and don't believe they can remove themselves. Those are usually the most toxic relationships that I see because, Probably they're both people are under stress anyway, but beyond that, it's kind of like the other person knows they're not leaving. They're not going anywhere. They made a commitment to God. They're going to stick around and put up with every bullshit thing I do. And, and so until we know we can remove ourselves from a situation, we have no power to invite the other person into higher consciousness and invite their, their best selves. So that's, 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 that's a weekend boundary workshop there in about yeah. 10 minutes. Oh, I'm ready to sign up. This is just wetting our appetite. I do want to, I want to ask you a couple of dad things, but I heard you say something on a, an interview you did that I, I thought was great. And for any of the single people out there, uh, it was really eye opening for me. You said, uh, when you're dating, especially it's okay to be a bad picker, but you have to be a good ender. And that's a yeah. skill that we never learned. And what did you say about your, maybe your first couple marriages even should have gone yeah. three dates before three uh, dates. you realized. Yeah. 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 I've shared that before. And, and that, that's not being hurtful or dismissive to any of the women I was married to. They, they were good women. They just weren't good matches for me. And, and like I said, you know, early on, I saw behaviors that, sh that should have said, no, this needs to end now. And yeah, I was married for 25 years to my first two wives. And I say, neither of whom I should have dated more than three dates. Now, so when I got divorced in my late forties from my second marriage, I, I realized I had to become a better picker. I had to pick better women. I hear men use the word, well, I want to learn how to get the high quality women. I actually cringe when I hear that. Cause I don't know. It's, it's almost 
too categorical. Like there's low quality women, high quality women. And for most men, that usually means, you know, the really attractive women that, that are highly sexual and, and who are a lot of fun, you know, that's their the high quality women uh, and, and who never treat them bad and want to have sex whenever they want. That's high quality. Now, I, I do believe, yeah, let's find people who are a good match for us. But for me, my high quality woman isn't just because she's a 10 or highly sexual. For me, high quality woman is a woman who will actually work through the challenging stuff of being in a relationship. I think majority of my relationships ended because as I tried to lead them into, into a healthier functioning, the women I with one way or another dug in their heels basically and said, nope, ain't going to change any more than this. I'm going to keep doing this thing that I know is really hurtful to the relationship, but I don't want change. Right? At some point, it, that's really what happened in every case. So for me, a high quality woman is a woman who I enjoy being with, who's intelligent, who's funny, who takes good care of herself, who reads a book every now and then, um, but mostly who thinks well of me, right, and is willing to go through. And that's, that's where I give kudos to, to my wife, Lupita. When we met, we didn't speak the same language different cultural background, Mexico. She grew up in poverty, eight out of 10 kids in Guadalajara, Mexico, alcoholic father, abusive siblings, uh, uh, other people. I've got construction going on in my house. So I'm kind of waving at other people walking by my, that, the door in my office. I thought that was Lapita telling you to stop talking about you. <laughs> no, 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 she, she, she actually left. That was, that was her earlier saying she was taking her sister to the bus station. Um, so, you know, totally different, you know, education. Lapita dropped out of high school at 15 to work and take care of her mother. I, had a PhD at 29, very white bread, suburban, you know, upbringing in Seattle, Washington. Very, very different. But you know what I love about this woman? She's the most emotionally adaptive person that I know. Another construction guy leaving. I'm wearing, I'm waving him out. So she'll, she'll work through whatever we need to work out. And I love that about her. And we have our struggles. She has her stuff. I still got my stuff. We trigger each other. But She's willing to go deep and work through her stuff. So, I mean, I, I love that. To me, that's a high-quality woman. So, yes, when I got out of that second marriage, I thought, I got to be a better picker. I got to pick better women. But I, but I thought, more important, I got to be a good ender. I don't need to stay 10 years, 14 years with a woman that I shouldn't have dated more than three dates. Now, here's what I found about dating for those your single guys or women listening, is that dating is actually a series of bad choices, you should go on a lot of one and done copy dates that, you know, it looks good on match. It looks good on tender. You know, your friend introduces, you go out and, and I tell guys, cause I teach a little men about dating. The whole purpose of the first three years of dating. <laughs> and I think it takes three years to really get to know the depths of somebody. And I said, the purpose of the first three years of dating is to keep asking yourself, what is this woman's nature and how does she fit into my life? Not, how do I get her to like me? How do I get her naked? How do I get her to keep liking me? How do I get her to not be mad at me and withdraw? You know, no, that's not the purpose of dating. The purpose of dating is to say, what is her nature? That's being a good picker, right? What is her nature and how does she fit into my life? Do I enjoy her? Does she have a good personality? Is she generous? Does she treat people well? Is she funny? Can she work through stuff? Is she intelligent? Uh, is she sensual? Is she passionate? Is she affectionate? Be asking those questions and saying, how is she a good fit for my life? So 
you're going to make a lot of bad picks, a lot of one and dones and go, no, she doesn't even come close or she kind of comes close, but not close enough. Or maybe I go on three or four dates to find out, yeah, she's got good qualities, but I just don't feel the chemistry I need. Or I just, you know, the, that's dating. So you're going to make a lot of bad picks. And what I say is that being a good ender can cover a multitude of sins of being a bad picker. Right. So, yeah, you go on one date and go, no, not her. You end it. Mm -hmm. Maybe even get naked with her and have sex, but realize, nah, this isn't long term <laughs> girlfriend material. You end it. Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're two or three months in thinking, yeah, I look pretty good going in. But about two or three months in, you just realize, nah, this is as far as it goes. It's just not just not long term. You end it. Right. So being the good ender keeps the door open for you making better picks. And it also covers that multitude of sins of all the bad picks that you're supposed to be making every time you go on a date with somebody. Just end it quickly if it's not who you want to be with, whether this is a woman you want to keep having sex with, if that's what you're looking for, or a woman that you want to have your kids, you want her to have your kids. You know, in fact, that's one thing, since this is a dad show, I tell men that are single and dating, if you want to be a father, if you want a family, if you want kids, Probably one of the first questions you need to be thinking and looking for in a woman's nature is what kind of mom would this woman make? Would she be a good mother to my children? So be asking that in terms of finding out her nature. And if you watch her over time, you read, oh, every little kid that comes by, she, she beams, she opens up, she loves touching them, holding them. She's generous. She's patient. She's, if you start seeing qualities that you want in the mother of your children, that might be a good woman to keep dating, right? And, and keep exploring other aspects of her nature. But if you see qualities in her, like she drinks too much, she's got a short temper, um, she can't work through problems. You want that woman raising your kids? I think not. So mm -hmm. make that decision early on. Yeah, well, that's good. And alleviates some of the guilt of, oh, I picked wrong again, or I got to have this uncomfortable breakup talk. These are all muscles that I think you almost need to, learn especially as you get older so it's that's well that's, and, and yeah you're right and i just want to put an exclamation point on that yes those are good muscles we need being a good ender i believe that maybe the number one success skill in life is being a good ender and i'm terrible at it every struggle i've had in life usually relates to the boundaries avoidance of conflict bad ender tri trifecta that i tend to have in my life as a nice guy so that being a good ender, whether it's in business, whether it's at a job, whether it's in relationship, whether it's one date in, three dates in, three months in, three years in, being the good ender is what opens the door for you getting what you want in life. And, and so um, when, I, when, I, when I became single in my 40s, I actually welcomed and embraced the opportunity to be a good ender and break up. Not, not that I wanted to hurt people because I didn't. I, I, I hate hurting people. But... I, whenever it felt like, eh, this, uh, this isn't going where I want, it's not who I want, I'd have to take a breath, do a little happy dance and go, okay, it's time to practice being a good ender. Mm -hmm. and, and how I would usually know is that it would stress me out enough, I'd get like a fever blister on the corner of my lip <laughs> and go, oh, I, I started calling them breakup blisters. Whenever, <laughs> whenever thinking about a relationship made me break out with type two herpes around my mouth, I'm thinking, it's time to end it. Yeah. So pay attention to that, those things in your body that just say, it, it's time to end it now. And sooner is always better than later.
Wow, this is this is a masterclass you're giving us here, uh, Robert. So let me ask you, since this is a dad podcast, you've got a son, 35, he's got a child. What would you say? I've got two boys. They're still eight and six and a three-year-old oh, girl. Fun. Good fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right up, right up in it. These are things that I think about, like you're saying, maybe some of the most important lessons that I can impart on my kids that are these things that you did with your son or you didn't realize them that you were later? What kind of advice would you give to dads maybe that do have teenagers or even just kind of cultivating this mindset as their kids grow up so they can kind of impart this kind of wisdom or do they just have to learn on their own and, and learn through failure? <laughs> well, we all are going to learn through trial and error. We all are. Like I said, I, I see my son, he's, he's an excellent dad. I mean, he's, and, and he's a custodial parent. Um, the, the, my, my granddaughter's mother, had issues and, and my son got to be custodial parent and he's just great. And I mean, since my granddaughter was like two, he'd get down on one knee and talk to her and never talked baby talk to her, never talked down to her. You get down, look her in the eye when she was two. I mean, and then, I mean I'm talking about my son who was like six, one, AAU weightlifting champion, national weightlifting champion at 15, lettered in multiple sports in high school, went into the Marines, was in Iraq and Fallujah, knows martial arts, knows guns. I mean, he's, he's just this big hulk of a guy. And here he is down on one knee with his little daughter looking her in the eyes, explaining that. Remember, we talked about we weren't going to do that. You remember that, right? Here's how we're going to do it. And I watched this stuff when he was just, you know, in his 20s with my my granddaughter going where did he learn to do that he's such a good dad <laughs> but he's got his own issues he can be a little bit of a helicopter dad sometimes trying to protect his daughter a little too much sometimes you know making a little bit too big a deal about what she eats or doesn't eat i get all that um so let me just throw out just a couple things about dad um when i talk with men. I've been working with men for mostly just men for 20, 25 years, and they bring up their dad issues. One of the things that, that really I see a lot of is that the, the boy, the, the, the adult now as a boy growing up, never experienced his father coming into his world and wanting to know him and be a part of his world. Now, my dad did in a lot of ways. He had his own flaws. But, you know, I, I remember he came to all my practices. He, we'd go to the schoolyard and he'd pitch to us. We'd hit fly balls. We'd play catch. Out in the, my earliest memories, my dad buying me a bat and ball, my first hardball, him pitching to me in the front yard and me hitting it through my parents' bedroom window and shattering <laughs> the glass. And, and, you know, and he didn't get mad about that. He was the one pitching the hardball. He bought me the hardball. So my, my dad, he took us camping. He took us fishing. And those are all things I really enjoyed. Now, on the other side of that, my younger brother wasn't as much into those things. He's more into playing music and other things. And because that wasn't my dad's gig, they, they, they never really bonded or connected. So one thing I would, I, the way I put it, I tell dads, learn to speak your child's language. And every if you have more than one, they all pop out different. If you have a boy and a girl, they're probably going to be different. But learn their language, you know, if it's a little girl and if it's ponies and rainbows and Elsa from Frozen, you know, <laughs> learn about that. You know, what I, I've seen so many, you know, uh, Pixar and Disney movies in Spanish, you know, with, with, with my stepkids. Um, now, with my stepson now, 
his language is different than what my biological son's was. My, my son played sports, he skied, he snowboarded, he was into martial arts. And, and whereas, you know, my stepson now has different interests. And he, he and so I try, I, you know, I, I watch the music that, that he, the videos that he watches, the music, and, and I know about Bad Bunny and, and, and all these <laughs> other, I'm thinking, <laughs> probably how my parents were with what I listened to. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I try to pay attention to what's going on in his world. What, what is his language? What's important to him? And uh, he loves Adidas sneakers. So, you know, I, you know, I, I, I like, you know, surprising them when I travel, you know, bringing back a different pair of Adidas sneakers for him. That's his language, right? That's what's important to him. And, um, and so that's one thing I would say, pay, know your kids well enough and take the time to go into their world with them. Now, you, you also, as you do that, you can then introduce them into the things that, are, that you believe are important for them. And I, and I think the number one job of parenting is to raise mature, happy, functioning adults, right? So, you know, what do your kids need to learn? Um, well, they need to learn how to do math. You know, they need to learn how to appreciate reading. They need to learn how to, uh, you know, I used to say balance a checkbook, but nobody does that anymore. Mm -hmm. They need to learn how to pump gas. Well, down here in Mexico, you don't. They pump it. Um, but there are life skills that they need, and that's our job as well, to teach them the life skills. Now, I, I've often said the one, I, I don't have many regrets in life. I've made a lot of mistakes, but, you know, they've been good learning experiences. But the one regret that I do have with, with my son is that as a kid, he often wanted me to read to him and tell him stories, you know, like at bedtime. And I was too emotionally fused with my second wife and, oh, I got to go get back to her and make her happy and blah, blah, blah. And, and I look back on that and I, I, you know, if I'd say one thing I wish I could do, would have done more, is, is read to him, make up stories with him, just have that time. So there's really a key factor here, just the time it takes. Now, it doesn't necessarily take as much time as we might think, like I said, with, with my two stepkids, um, they don't speak, well, they're learning English in school. Um, and my Spanish, I mean, I, I can get around and I can get along. And my wife and I only speak Spanish, but with them, it, we have a little harder time communicating. So I just try to spend time, even though even we're not talking much, just time, you know, with them, doing things, being physically affectionate with them. If nothing else, them just knowing there's this man in their house that loves them. And so if your kids, you know, know you love them, and, and if at all possible, if you're with your kid's mother, um, I, I, I heard or read a, years ago, said the best thing you can do for your children is love their mother, which goes back to really the relation stuff we've been talking about, that, that yeah, show the kids what mature adults look like in relationship. That doesn't mean you gotta be perfect, but show them what it looks like to work through difficulty and come out the other side of it, to, to be affectionate, to be loving. Because believe it or not, most of the adults I work with, when I do like often a visualization of like a, a reparenting visualization with them, where I have them imagine that they're a child walking into their childhood home and they see their parents like sitting on the couch, being affectionate and loving to each other. And then, you know, hey, come here. And they're affectionate, loving to him. And then, then I do a whole little scenario of going for a picnic and this. The response that most people have to that is like, what planet does that exist on? <laughs> you know, we're, and, but the number one thing is most people cannot imagine their parents being loving and affectionate with each other. Mm. Now, I'm grateful for all my parents' flaws. They did 
seemed to have an affectionate relationship. They weren't particularly physically affectionate with those kids, but they were with each other. But most people can't even imagine their parents sitting close to each other on a couch, smiling and being happy and being loving and affectionate and loving and affectionate towards their kids. For most people I work with, they go, that, doesn't, that didn't happen in my world. I can't even imagine that. So yeah, so people listening, Use your relationship as that powerful personal growth machine. Use your partner as, as a chance to, to, to both grow, work on your issues, but also use it as, as that, that Petri dish, that test tube in which you're raising your kids, where they get to see people loving each other and working through problems and supporting each other. Let your kids see that. That's, man, if you can give them that, I mean, that's so amazingly valuable. That's incredible advice. And I could do this for another couple hours, but that's a great moment to end on. Dr. Robert Glover, tell people where they can find some of your work. I know your book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, I highly recommend to everybody. And, and also what you said about uh, guys finding, whether it's a men's group or just other guys that they can be vulnerable with. I think that's something that a lot of us don't do that I think is great advice. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm easy to find that my website is just drglover.com, D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com. If they Google No More Mr. Nice Guy, if they Google Robert Glover, I've got like the top 10 uh, entries on, on both of those searches. I even beat out Alice Cooper for No More <laughs> Mr. Nice Guy. Um, and um, yeah, I was going to say something else, but forgot what it was. So yeah, uh, just, just come look. Oh yeah. What I was going to say, you mentioned the men's groups and even if they just email me, if they email me, Robert at drglover.com, say they're looking for a group or looking for a coach. Uh, I've got an assistant that that is all he does for me is answer emails and point them, point people to resources uh, for, for doing this kind of work. So yeah, send me an email and I'll, I'll have my assistant get back to them. Well, this is, this is one of the favorite interviews I've done. Dr. Glover, I appreciate you being on and sharing this wisdom with other dads. And uh, hopefully we will stay in touch and talk soon. Rob, this was fun. Thanks for the invitation. And yeah, we'd love to talk again.